Yeah, I've got uh, copies if you want a paper copy down here. You certainly don't have to take them. Um, I put on the uh, band a copy of the notes for uh, tonight also, so you can look along, uh, follow along with that. We'll be uh, focusing on the, I guess, essentially the last half of Psalm 19. Um, I'll talk about Psalm 19 for just a second while everybody kind of gets, gets situated about things. And that is Psalm 19 is a very mature psalm. There's one way, there's one word that I think characterizes Psalm 19. It is a deep maturity that's in David. That I'll be honest with you, in some ways the cool, cool funny word to describe scriptures. But in some ways the, the, the surprising thing about the scriptures when you look at it is that you do see in the Davidic Psalms this kind of growth. This, it's not necessarily linear in that you can't, you don't feel like necessarily he's more grown up in Psalm, in Psalm 19 than he is in Psalm 18 because, uh, and he doesn't track that way because, you know, later in the Psalms, you're going to see some moments that lead to Psalm 19. Um, that's the beauty of it. And so we, we see this maturity in David. And, and the way I characterized it in the notes was he shows us really this restorative power of the scriptures. That when people get in the scriptures, there is something healing about the scriptures. That what's wrong with you can be repaired by, by words. By words. Now, I'm going to say this um, to a church I dearly love. The first thing that troubled me about being in the ministry 20 years ago, 20 years ago, was that people would come to me with problems wanting me to solve them with words. Somebody was dead and they wanted me to make them feel better with a word. I knew the limitations of human words. I didn't know as much scriptures I needed to, but I had that down. Was like there was nothing Tony was going to say at 20 or 30 or 40 or 50 that was going to fix the fact that your heart was so severely broken by that. And so I felt the limitations of my life and my ministry. At the same time, it has guided me to do something that I think is absolutely justified. And that is, I'm going to point people toward eternal truth in times of trouble. I don't have anything, ladies, to say to you that will make the heartbreak of, of a problem with your child go away. But the scriptures do. The scriptures heal those things. The prescription that every pastor has is to point their people toward infinite truth. Look to the scriptures. Not to each other, not to me, but to, to God in the scriptures. So David knows that, and then he starts to talk about it. I want to... I want to share this, even though I'm just doing uh, verses 7 through 14. He shares them out of, I'm going to share them to you out of order, okay? Let's look at verses 10 and 11 first. In verses 10 and 11, um, he, he, he talks about the, the, and I said the effect of the, uh, upon the frailty of the human condition of the word. When he says in verses 10 and 11, more to be blessed are they than gold, the scriptures. Even much fine gold, sweeter also than honey and drippings of the honeycomb. Moreover, by them is your servant warned. In keeping them, there's great reward. Biblical truth 
is more valuable in your life and more to be yearned for than the elusiveness and preciousness of riches. Now, I want to I wanna emphasize that for just a moment. I know my congregation pretty well. Um, nobody's rich. Right? I mean, we don't have any rich people. In fact, we have a lot of people who are probably closer to poor than, than rich. We just don't have rich people here. It does not mean, though, that we are not pursuing riches. In many ways, in the best and most biblical way possible in terms of provision in terms of leaving an inheritance to our children we, we do those things we may not live very well but one of these days when we pass we want to be able to leave an inheritance to our children biblically speaking that's an approved of approach to to money and to finances but now what david says here is you're going to pursue some of those things because those things are to be pursued in life. They are the end product of hard work, for instance. The end product of, of saving and conservative money management. The end product of, 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 of tithing and giving is still the idea that God would bless us financially. But he says, wait a second, more so than the fact that, that we are a world of poor people who are all trying to leave a little something to help our children. More so than that, is to pursue eternal truth. Pursue the scriptures. They are more to be yearned for, more to be pursued than riches. And, it's more ple and they're more pleasing to the palate. He compares them to honey. He says that they are sweeter also than honey. They're better for the palate. The better to be pursued than, than rich food. They're more energizing than rich food. And they're more sustaining than food is. We can live without food. We can live without food. We'll survive some time without food. We can. A lot longer than we think we can. Right? We're, we live in a culture of the 21st century that started to discover what some of us discovered quite a while ago. Intermittent fasting. You know, way longer without eating than we think we can. We think we have to eat. In fact, just thinking about not eating makes us what? Hungry. We'll go, we'll go rummage through the refrigerator because we thought about maybe fasting next week. Put, up five, put on five pounds when we think about fasting. But the reality is, is that God has programmed us in such a way and given us a blessing of fasting that we know we can go way longer without food than we think we can. Than we think we can. Way longer. Our bodies can sustain themselves without food. But now, David would lead us to believe that we can't sustain ourselves any time without the blessings of God's Word. But now also, in, in verse 11, Moreover, by them is your servant warned. Through the Scriptures, the servants of God receive holy warnings. We need the scriptures not just because they, they enrich us as gold does or they sustain us and energize us as, foods do, as food does. We need the scriptures because the scriptures do what? They give us warnings. We are people who are always dangerously close to the line. 
you know what I mean by that? You're always dangerously close to doing things that are either downright sinful or at the very least unwise. We are not those people that will try to stay away from the margins. We will drive as close to the edge as we can. And we need the scripture to give us constant warnings and fervent cries for our repentance and our change. We need that. We need the scriptures to be open upon our laps all the time, teaching us that we are wrong and that we must repent. I mean, if there's one thing I've explored more, and Brother Brian, we've explored more recently, is the idea that there may be within our lives repentance that's long overdue. Long overdue. That we are a repenting people. There's the definition of the believer is that we are always repenting. God is always through his scriptures bringing out our shortcomings to us. And showing us the mercy of calling us to repent. When we keep the scriptures closely and carefully. Then God blesses his chosen people. It's what we want. We want to keep them so carefully. We are not legalists. We are not Pharisees. But we are those who love our God so much and show our love to him by listening to him and obeying him. It's that def one of those definitions of being a faithful believer in Christ is that we obey his word. And the only way to do that is to be a guy's a little obsessive over it. A little obsessive over what does the word say? What's the clearest reading of the scriptures? All those things that we talk about in preacher circles, we really need to talk about in the circle that is the church itself. What does the word really say? Are we being faithful to God's word? Moses says in Deuteronomy 4, 6, keep them and do them. So begin the scriptures. For that will be your wisdom and your understanding in the sight of the peoples who when they hear all these statutes will say, surely this great nation is a wise and understanding people. He speaks to the nation. We're in a time of national turmoil. It's okay for us to speak to the nation. Or the part of it that assembles with us. That pays attention to what we say. And that is if we want to be seen as a wise and understanding people. Then we must be fully engaged in heart and mind. With the infinitely inerrant word of God. We want to be seen as a wise people. A wise people are those who keep the word of God. That's what wise people do. Wise people obsessively keep the word of God. Now verses 7 through 9, enlighten God's people. In, in, that's why I say this is a creed in a creedal fashion. Now it was sung, but I'll be honest with you. I, you look at this in David, just like you look at some of those passages in Paul, and you say to yourself, that's set to music so we can do what? Memorize it. So, so you would walk around in the fields doing your morning work, humming to yourself these words. These words. It should not diminish their truth that they are catchy. It should not diminish their truth that they are sung. In fact, I've said many, many times we would sing differently if we thought about what we were really singing. We wouldn't mutter through a declaration of the glory of God if we realized it really declared because we wouldn't read it that way. We'll allow somehow the fact that it is a song to rob it of that essential goodness, that essential 
majesty, and it shouldn't be robbed at all. So he does this. I'm going to read it to you, and then I want to explain it a little bit. The law of the Lord is perfect, reviving the soul. The testimony of the Lord is, is sure, making wise the simple. The precepts of the Lord are right, rejoicing the heart. The commandment of the Lord is pure, enlightening the eyes. The fear of the Lord is clean, enduring forever. The rules of the Lord are true and righteous altogether. Now, he, he, look at this. Law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. So of the passage we're looking at, we've got law, testimony, precepts, commandments, rules. Five of them. Five of the six things that are talked about specifically refer back to God's word. One other thing is spoken of in verse 9, and that is a reaction to the other five. My reaction to God's truth, whether it is law or testimony or precept, commandment, rule, uh, whatever, it doesn't matter, is always going to be fear. Fear. You're doing all these things. God's giving you all this truth. Your reaction, church, should be fear. If God says something, I should be afraid to cross Him. If God teaches something, I should be afraid to not believe it. If God says do something, I should be afraid to not do it. We, we're not robbing God of His majesty and His glory, but we're reinforcing through this passage the majesty and glory of the one true God. If God says go to church, then we do what? Go to church. Why? Because God said to. Very, very simple. And we practiced it our whole lives. When we were children, if your parents said it, you did it. Why? Because you knew if you didn't do it, what was going to happen? You're going to get in trouble. And when you had kids of your own, you told them to do things. If they didn't do it, what happened? They got in trouble. We understand the authority of the spoken command. We understand the authority of the written command. If you, you, you do what, what the rightful authority says. If God says, think this, we think it. If he says, do this, we do it. Simple. Now, let's, let's explore it. For just it's, it's creedal, I said before. David tells us in verse 7 that God's law is perfect without error and accomplishing every task for which the Lord has envisioned it. It does exactly, precisely what God dispatched the law to do. It is perfect. And will revive and restore the souls of men and women when we are weary and troubled. The idea that the law, the do's and don'ts of the scripture. Do this, don't do that. It seems so cold and, and to be blunt with you, so legalistic. But David said it's not legalistic at all. David says it reveals the, the, the enlivening power of God. That when God takes control of my life in the do's and the don'ts, when God morally assumes command of who I am, it does not rob me of power and life, but it, it raises me from the dead and enlivens me. That when God assumes control, I am more alive than I've ever been. Revise and restores the soul of men and women when we're weary and troubled. In the face of death, the law of God is life. Also, the testimony of the Lord is given to the world through the scriptures is without question and always powerfully truthful. It's sure. Sure. What tears down strongholds? The testimony of the Lord. 
what destroys the demonic, the testimony of the Lord. We have no power over the things that would oppress us, but the testimony of the Lord destroys the walls of Jericho. The testimony of the Lord is sure. It does everything that God wants it to do. So much so that it makes wise sim men simple. Wise uh, makes wise simple men and women, even though we live in a confusing and chaotic world. It's so powerful that even simpletons become wise because of God's enriching word. Verse 8 promises God's people that his moral teachings within the scripture are not only true and for the individual and common good of mankind, but they will make our hearts rejoice when we surrender to them. The precepts of the Lord. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to mash up a little bit. The precepts of the Lord bring rejoicing to the heart. And again, I have to emphasize for just a moment, more often than not, we don't see the commands of God that prevent often what we want to really want to do in our flesh and think and feel in our flesh. That prevent that and call us to do things that we simply do not want to do in our flesh. We don't see that as bringing rejoicing to us. But the fact of the matter is, is that what David says is that when men and women who are called by God out of darkness and into marvelous light will start to live their lives the way God has commanded them to live, they will do nothing but rejoice. Nobody ever gave up anything in the power of Christ and regretted it. You're always better when we do things God's way. David emphasizes over and over again. True rejoicing is in surrendering our lives completely in every action and every thought to God. In every thought and every action. At the same time, his commandments are without blemish and open the eyes of those who are in bondage to darkness. They open eyes. The commandments of the Lord is pure, enlightening eyes. Eyes that are dark, that are darkened by sin and darkened by the devil, are enlightened, are given sight. By the commandments of God. Verse 9 highlights a response of the believer by saying that fearing our God is ceremonially clean and morally cleansing. The fear of the Lord is clean. We're talking about ceremonially, sacrificially. That, that fear, fear is part of preparing ourselves to be, to live that sacrificial life. I follow God. Because it is good and the scriptures declare it. But I follow God because he opens my heart through fear of God. I'm afraid of disappointing my God. I'm never at ease when I know I've broken the heart of my God. Fear courses through me and it causes me to turn from my wicked ways and seek the way of God. Fear is clean. It's ceremonially clean and sacrificially clean. It's a logical reaction to the presence and the truth of God that prepares believers for the work of Christ. Fear is logical. Fear makes sense. To not fear God is theologically unfounded and simply put, illogical. Anybody who says they don't fear God has, doesn't know who God is. Has never looked into the scriptures. Has never seen his face as shown through the word of God. 
Also, the rules of Christian morality that are taught through God's word in preaching and prophecy are all truthful and all righteous. Presented to be followed and prepared to recast the image of the believer in the light of his or her glorious Lord in heaven. Look, in his book, Man Alive, Chesterton compares men and women to puddles upon the ground. He writes, a puddle repeats infinity and is fully and is full of light. It reflects. You can see your image in a puddle. You can cast a stone upon it and the rings will go out and out and out. It's kind of a beautiful thing, isn't it? But then he adds, nevertheless, if analyzed objectively, a puddle is a piece of dirty water spread very thin on mud. It's who we are. Capable of reflecting the glory of God. But deep down, dirty water spread over mud. Truly people do this very thing. We're capable of great displays of the glory of God and titanic submission to his gorgeous will. However, we are still muddy water on the filthy ground. So much of the teaching of scripture designed by our Father for the express purpose of maximizing the light of Christ, which is displayed by the lives of men and women. He is polishing us like not muddy puddles, but mirrors that can be honed to a deep and wonderful shine so that we can truly display the image of God to the world. He doesn't want to settle for puddles. He doesn't want dirty water on a muddy ground. What he wants is a, is a looking glass that can really display to the world what God wants the world to see. So much of the scriptures prepare us for that. Reducing the impact of the lingering muck in our existence. Minimizing the fact of the, the power of our flesh. The power of our traditional sinfulness, our traditional wickedness, our traditional bigotry. Washing that away. In our passage for consideration today, David is, is the herald of a new formed Christian, new conformed Christian life motivated by the scriptures. He is, he is teaching something that, that will echo throughout the New Testament. It can be found throughout it. But David, the author, is not this great moralist. I think the title has been thrust upon a very unworthy life, to be blunt with you. But the flawed sinner who spends his life and reign dealing with the impact of an undesired suffering from his legendary failings. What should have been a kingdom of peace became a realm of blood for David. Described in Acts 13, verse 22, as he raised up David to be their king, of whom he testified and said, I found in David the son of Jesse, a man after my heart, who will do all my will. I compare that true statement to what I know about David, to what I know about who David was. And, and I, I'm, not, I'm not deflated by that. I don't doubt because of that. Let me share. Though he's a great lover of God, David's moral life was a catastrophe. Adultery and murder. How do, you, how do you characterize it in any way but that? The only way to go opposite that is to say that apparently to God, adultery and murder don't matter. And we know the scriptures forbid that interpretation. We know they do. But because David's moral life was a catastrophe, we can now take heart. We should take heart not in our sin, but in God's mercy toward the repentant sinner. 
that when sinners repent, God is merciful. Everything about David's life illustrates that one point of, of the saving faith in Christ Jesus our Lord. Is that when sinners repent, God has mercy. John says in John 1, 9, if we confess our sins, he's faithful and just to forgive us our sins and to cleanse us from all unrighteousness. God's response to our sin when confessed is forgive it. Work on our lives to cleanse them. The action of God. God does for us things we cannot do for ourselves in response to biblical repentance. Understand though that repentance is an act of completion, so to speak. Not just one which we vow to do. It's not just, it, it's not the same as saying, well, I repent of this. It's not the same, but should be evident in our ongoing actions. Christ diffuses that idea that somebody can say, well, I repent, and it's over when he says in Matthew uh, chapter 3, verse 8, bear fruit in keeping with repentance. So for Christ, real repentance, biblical repentance, has fruit, has Another word, evidence. We know someone repented because we see the evidence of repentance. Now, God knows whether the repentance is true or not. He doesn't need evidence to judge our hearts. He clearly knows the heart of every human. The evidence is because the world knows we sinned. We have now repented and now it sees the truth of repentance. Our fruit of repentance is a preaching of the gospel to the lost world. We were confronted with our sin. We repented of our sin. And now we show the evidence of, of, of true biblical heart change of repentance. It is an illustration to the world that the gospel is absolutely transforming. The gospel changes lives. Understand though that repentance is an act of completion. We got that. Apparently saying you are sorry and doing the same thing again without worry or conviction is not true biblical repentance. Is, a, is not true biblical repentance that flows from a deep and abiding salvific relationship with Christ. I think that's where the Bible strikes out at, at, at our false repentance. Is that we'll confuse repentance with saying I'm sorry. And I'm sorry and I'm sorry. Now listen, it doesn't mean believers that we don't struggle with sin. It doesn't mean that we don't continue to plumb the depths of repentance over brothers and sisters a single sin. But there's conviction. There's chastisement. God deals with that sin. It's not, I'm sorry, and I go on and live as if nothing ever happened. It's not that at all. That's what we tried when we were kids, and our parents would accept that. This deep, abiding, salvific relationship with Christ produces in us biblically defined repentance. Now, Paul defines this for us in 2 Corinthians 7, 10 through 11. For godly grief produces a repentance that leads to salvation without regret, whereas worldly grief produces death. For we see what earnestness this godly grief has produced in you, but also what eagerness to clear yourself, what indignation, what fear, what longing, what zeal, what punishment. At every point you have proved yourselves innocent in this matter. I want to walk you through it very quickly. The repentance that Paul describes is characterized by godly grief over sin that leads to true repentance and salvation and leaves no regret 
when we have truly repented and truly been born again, then we owe nothing else for sin. It is not, it is not faith in Christ Jesus plus restoration that saves. Once we are born again, then we are born again. The sin debt that we owed has been forever canceled. Christ now is our intermediary of a new covenant. In which he defends us. All those things are absolute. There are no regrets. There's nothing left over. Now the worldly kind of, of repentance, essentially being sorry, leads only to death. There are so many people in this world that are never truly going to repent. Therefore, they're never going to repent of their sins. Therefore, they have never believed in Christ. And they're going to say they're sorry until sorries won't help them anymore. The real kind of grief which leads to repentance also changes our attitudes and behaviors, producing in believers honesty. Earnestness. Honesty. We are very honest about who we are. Truly repentant people have come to, to grips, for lack of a better term, with the fact that they have sinned grievously. They may not want to confess it, but they will be honest about their shortcomings. Honesty. Uh, a rush to, to change and mend our habits, to be different and to prove that we're di different. Anger. Anger. Repentance produces in us Real anger at ourselves and our sin. Not angry because we got caught or angry because somebody got mad or angry because somebody got but their feelings hurt about it. We're angry at us. We're fed up with ourselves when we're truly repentant. The natural fear of God. We're back to that idea. This natural fear of God. Repentance produces a fear of God. A skipping of the heart. Because we realize we've broken the heart of the, one who's, of the only one whose opinion really matters. Believers should never be easy about offending God. We should never be easy about breaking God's law. A longing to be truly proven different by the blood of Christ. Man, when, we have, when, when true believers sin and we repent, we want to show the world that we are really different. We are driven at that point. To display the fact that our lives are really different than they were before. The last thing a true believer wants to be thought of is fake, right? The last thing anybody in this room, the true believer wants is for, for people around them to think that they're not a real believer. Nothing is more insulting. We want to be proven true. Proven different by the blood of Christ. There's an increased zeal for the law and the word of God. We become more zealous. Repentance produces in believers greater zealousness. We, we, we want more of the word. We want to see, want to read more of it. And then finally, in surrender to justice, believers who repent understand that sometimes with sin comes punishment. We become accepting of our fate because believers who repent love justice more than they love their own convenience. It's just that you do this. It's just that I accept my punishment. It's just that this is my fate. Because believers have repented, now love justice more than themselves. Our Lord saw this in David's heart despite countless indiscretions. And he will extend mercy to us if we can manifest in our lives the authentic work 
of biblical repentance. David is an example for us in, in Psalm 19 of what God will do. Then finally, let's, let's continue very quickly. The spirit of biblical repentance courses through this psalm um, highlighted when David asked himself these probing questions beginning in verse 12. Who can discern his errors? Declare me innocent from hidden faults. The depth of repentance is in surrendering our lives to the truth of Scripture and the direct gaze of the righteous and just God. The repentant soul is asking God to examine their lives. I think that there's a problem, that a real problem that we have as a, as a church, especially in this, in this day and age, is the fact that people don't want to look very deeply into their own hearts. People don't want to ask God to point things out. People are afraid of what they're going to find. We have these shells of peace, of peacefulness, and we don't want them cracked. We don't want them broken. And what we need to do is what David does. David says, God, David's the king. He's the ruler of all he surveys. And he says to God, God, show me my faults. Only you really know, God, show me. Only Christ can declare man or woman just because only the Lord knows human hearts. David's asking if God will look deeply within him and find every flaw, every darkness, every selfish arrogance, and every hidden and denied sin. God find everything that's in there. No man can see himself as God sees him. But finally, David prays a powerful prayer of repentance and submission to God's righteousness and not that of humanity. In verse 13, he writes, Keep back your servant also from presumptuous sins. Let them not have dominion over me. Then I shall be blameless and innocent of great transgression. David's a mature believer at this time. And David hates his sin and wants his God to confront sin in him. David is literally asking God to be harsh with him. God, don't give me any slack. David despises sin so much that he wants the Lord to root out every kernel of transgression. And I think there's the real truth right there that maybe the mature believers in this room have to hear. It's not just what we do. It's what we think. We're holding back and we've learned to play the game. And we learned to stay away from certain things. We've learned to hold our tongues. And God is saying it's deeper than that sin. If there's a kernel of sin, it will come out. What David's talking about here is declaring war on the sin in our lives. Asking God to declare war on it. Everything that a man would consider not so terrible, David mourns over. I think there, there's the issue too there. As we get older, we start to see a little bit of slack. And we start extending ourselves a little. It's like, wait, that's not too bad. It's okay. Everybody does that. It's not any big deal. And we start moving that line off of true, don't we? It used to be straight, and now there's a big old hump in it. And we're now calling things that are righteous that aren't righteous. That aren't righteous at all. But David's backtracked. He's mourning over those things. In the end, David asks. He asks this, in verse 14, he says, Let the words of my mouth and the meditation of my heart be acceptable in your sight, O Lord, my rock and my redeemer. This is the most titanic statement of the entire psalm. This is the demonstration of David's maturing faith and embracing of true, ongoing, progressive, prayerful repentance is that now he equates everything that he says or thinks 
with an offering of God. That word in the Hebrew for acceptable is used for the sacrifices. Make everything I say and think and do a sacrifice, God. Because you can't offer. You're cursed if you offer a lame sacrifice. You're cursed if you offer a stained sacrifice. It's not God twist your rules so that everything I think that's crazy you're okay with. Or, or twist your rules, God, because I'm just that kind of person and I'm going to be ill every once in a while, God, and I just don't like people very much and blah, 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 blah. Nonsense, nonsense, nonsense. Twist your rules, God, so that's okay. No, he's saying make everything that comes out of my mouth be sacrificial in nature. Be prepared for God to hear and God to be glorified by. Take command of all of me. The demonstration of David's maturing faith and embracing of true, ongoing, progressive prayer for repentance is that he's now equates everything he says or thinks with an offering to God. All his words and thoughts are now sacrificial. Nothing is David's. Nothing's David's. He doesn't have, he doesn't have control over anything, but he has responsibility over everything. David's thoughts, late at night when nobody's looking, belong to God. David's thoughts, when he's insulted to his face, belong to God. Nothing is his. Everything that David declares now is to bring honor and glory to God alone. That's the nature of a life that's lived dedicated to the holiness of God. Let's pray.